When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it is fall, which means it's National Novel Writing Month season, aka NaNoWriMo. And if you don't know about NaNoWriMo, it is a challenge to write 50,000 words of your story in the month of November. That's 30 days. And we believe that a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. And here are two things to think about in order to encourage you to sign up for NaNoWriMo. One, it's kind of like a writing boot camp. It trains you to be the writer by having you show up every day to write and to reach for a goal. But then it's also a rollicking writing community. We have a thousand volunteers around the world who organize in-person writing events, and we're basically everywhere on the internet. It's a galvanizing force to feel that the whole world is writing with you, and it's free. So all you have to do is go to nanorimo.org and sign up. It's like signing up for any social media profile. And then get ready to write on November 1st. I'll see you there. Hello, dreamers, dream catchers, and dream chasers. Welcome to our show, Right Minded, where we talk about writing and things that are writing adjacent and which funnel into writing or just writing well or writing better. Uh, and sometimes writing with more awareness, which is where we're heading today. And Grant, today's guest, Zivia Gover, has written a book called Dreaming on the Page, which is all about how to harness the power of our dreams and what Zivia calls our midnight mind. Love that phrase to inspire, create, and be more creative. And I love this book because it's got some truly unique ideas for writers. And while it might seem like it's geared for writers who are stuck, it's not. It's really geared toward anyone who's looking for different access points of any kind, uh, specifically and explicitly using dreams as an access point. And so with that in mind, Grant, are you someone who remembers your dreams and do you ever integrate your dream world into your writing? I'll uh, start by agreeing with you that I just love the phrase midnight mind when you use that <laughs> because as a lifetime insomniac or just weird sleeper these days, I, I love the types of thoughts that you can have in the middle of the night, you know, when it's just you and the darkness. And the other thing, thing about those dreams, though, is that I don't remember many of mine. Mm -hmm. I, I wish I was one of those people who got in touch with the other side through dreams and kept a dream diary, but it's... It's more that I have an intimacy with my thoughts in the middle of the night, which isn't to say necessarily a clarity. You know, I feel like um, as Zivia talks about, you're you're in a whole different neurochemical state at that point. And so my my brain is is more prone to exaggerated perspectives in the nighttime. I'll put it that way. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm curious though, have you ever integrated a dream into your writing in any way? Or is it kind of just more mergy? Like sometimes it informs. I have a story that, that really um, was spawned by my insomnia. I wrote it a long time ago, but it's in my, my recent collection, All the Comfort Sync Can Provide. And so I did alter the narrative and the way I wrote it to kind of have an insomniac dream state feel, you know, more mm -hmm. of a kind of anxiety dream state feel. But yeah, no, I, I used to be very interested in that, those borderlands between dreaming and reality and how they influenced each other. And I think that story is probably my best attempt at, at those blurry lines. Hmm. 
I love that. Yeah. I mean, reading Zivia's book made me realize how much I don't dream anymore or just don't remember my dreams in the way that I used to. I think when I was younger, I did. And I think part of the problem here is busyness. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm unique in that way. You know, it's like the work I do, parenting a young child, real world stresses, and I wake up to an alarm clock and immediately start thinking about my day rather than allowing myself to luxuriate in that dream world. And I think when we're younger and we're kind of sleeping in or don't have those same pressures, you can be emerging out of a dream world in a different kind of way. Uh, and so, but the other thing is like, I haven't really given attention to my dreams in the way that Zivia suggests that we do or we might. Uh, that said, I'm super conscious of serendipities, you know, and I've been experiencing this, especially with my memoir that I'm in the process of writing, like moments of coincidence, thinking about something or someone, and then having that something or someone connect to my life, like in now times, which is, you know, just like paying attention to things, which I think is very parallel to the kind of experience that she's talking about, because it's like these different levels of consciousness that we have access to. So it's slightly different, but interconnected. Yeah, it, it sounds like we're the same when it comes to dreaming, Brooke. I, I, I've often thought that all of the busyness of being an adult, you know, has just affected my awareness of my dreams, which is too bad. I really <laughs> regret that. Um, but, it's, but it's interesting because Zivia in her book, you know, she makes a connection between lack of dream recall and writer's block. And she tells a really sweet and interesting anecdote about a boy who, who thought it was called writer's blank, which is, <laughs> which is actually a more apropos term in so many ways. And, and she writes about how dreaming and writing both require that we dwell in the uneasy darkness of uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. And for a lot of people, nighttime, especially waking up in the middle of the night can lead to, to bouts of anxiety because we're, we're running through all the things we most fear, or we just get stuck in a cycle of anxiety. And, and writing can create that same kind of cycle for people because sometimes that's about the content they're writing. And sometimes it's just about because writing creates a lot of, uh, you know, kind of tethers to expectation. Like who's, who's going to read our work? Is it worth the time or, or money? we may be spending on it or is it good enough? You know, basically all those fears that our inner critics push onto us. And Sylvia quotes Muriel Rukeyser, who said, I'm very intrigued by this quote. <laughs> she said, we fear poetry because we fear emotions. And I'm not sure that I entirely agree with that thought because, because that the lack of, of dream recall is tied to writer's block directly. Cause I, I don't have writer's block, you know? And so I, I, I do wonder if it's relating to, to having just the time and the environment to go deeper, you know, to essentially exist in dream time, you know, during the night and during the day. That's how I view it as a fiction writer, but Burkett, I'm imagining some of this resonates with you and your work with memoirs. Yeah. And I think maybe what she's saying is like that writer's block um, stems from the same place as lack of dream recall, right? Like what she's saying is like, we don't actually not dream. It's just that we don't necessarily recall it. And it's probably similar with this concept of writer's block, which is like, we don't actually have writer's block. It's more that we need to be able to beckon the things to us, right? Because self-expression is scary. And it's true. Like I looked at that quote, we fear poetry because we fear emotions. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I, I agree with that, like on a literal level, but I certainly believe that writing truth is scary. Um, and, and if you think about like, okay, so we fear, you know, is it true that writers just fear? Um, yes, <laughs> you know, and, and that a lot of us, like myself too, I stay busy sometimes to avoid feeling. I know that that's like a, a historic thing that I've done. And I think that's actually kind of 
endemic in our culture. Uh, and so I don't know, I, I, there's a lot of food for thought in this book, which I really, really like, because it's also speaking to social situations, like uh, the fact that we're rewarded in our society for staying busy, you know, all the trappings of success that give us zero time. And writing is not that, you know, you have to set aside time to write, time to be with your thoughts. It requires being alone and even isolated often. Uh, And so I see the phenomenon, you know, with a lot of writers who stall out at certain points in their book, which can be like things that are turning point moments, something difficult is about to happen or things have been kind of positive and now they're about to go south or it's the very end of the book. And so what I like that Sevilla is really tapping into is like, there is a lot of psychology at play that we know to be true. And I've read a lot about the interplay of psychology and writing and all this stuff. But now we're talking about, you know, unconscious and subconscious states, whether like Zibia is going to speak to in the interview that synchronicities or whether it's our dream world. So I don't know. I I really like it, but I I think it's right. I think we do need to keep unpacking that quote a little bit more, you know, like ask ourselves, what was Muriel Reichheiser getting at when she was speaking to that idea of fear? Yeah, it's it's definitely an intriguing quote and uh, one that requires a much deeper reflection than me kind of reacting to it on the fly here. But, you know, I'm just thinking of it and, and like speaking personally, I, I don't fear poetry. You know, I want more of it. I want more emotions and more words to describe those emotions. But they're obviously the way I think of it is that there are just forces of society that make poetry and feelings difficult to access. So I, I don't want to minimize that difficulty to just place it within the realm of fear, because I think there are just so many other things to consider, such as hard work and taking care of people, you know, meeting kids and the elderly and, and being even an activist to change the, you know, a lot of the wrongs facing the world. So, you know, I know there are some people who fear poetry and emotions and do their best to, you know, create structures or activities to avoid or minimize them. But I also think humans are naturally, you know, we're naturally feeling creatures and storytelling creatures. And I think that this is at the heart of what Zibia is getting at. So I just like to think that we need the right environment or the right path to feel a bit more comfortable. And I guess to, to really locate that poetry. Yeah. And I, I appreciate this conversation so much. I think we should do another show about fear because Mm -hmm. fear is just a big one. And I am one of those people who wakes up in the middle of the night, you know, feeling anxious or, you know, just trying to will myself back to sleep because I'm running through my to-do list or, or whatever. And and Grant, so thanks for talking about, you know, the way that you wrote that story in sort of a dream-like state, but there's also the ways in which dreams, influence our day to day, you know, and I'm just curious, is there like, I'm thinking about recurring dreams that I might have had when I was a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. and is there a recurring dream from the past or something that you've had more recently, you know, that had some kind of broader impact on your creative life? Yeah, you know, I was just talking about this with a friend. And, and we were talking about this, I I wish they had a label, because I think there's a universal dream that, that everyone has had at one point or many points, you know, and the dream is about like, you've done something wrong, maybe atrociously wrong, maybe even killed someone. So suddenly you're walking around your dream world as a criminal, except, you know, you didn't do the crime or you don't remember doing it in the dream world, yet all signs point to you. So you're guilty in the eyes of others. And I suppose this dream is is similar to the one where, you know, most people have also had this, where they're at school or they're at work and they've forgotten to put on their clothes or they're wearing their pajamas. And I think 
like both of these dreams speak to when you mentioned fear, Brooke, I think they speak to a primal fear of being ostracized and punished and getting kicked out of the group. And our brains are wired uh, to some degree to fear getting kicked out of our group. So I think, I think dreams are created in those primal spaces. And that's what really interests uh, me in them is how they, they help us return to those primal spaces in really kind of vivid, amazing storytelling ways. So I'm curious, Brooke, as a, as a fellow, uh, not dream recaller or whatever, and not, not recalling <laughs> our dream. And since uh, Sivia's book, you know, clearly made an impact on you, are there any of the exercises that you might try to see if you can access your dreams? Yeah, specifically, there's a section on napping with purpose, <laughs> which mm. is very cool. Uh, and I am not a great napper because the aforementioned busyness, right? But when I do nap, I have this sort of lucid sinking under feeling that is really delicious, right? I mean, it's like you feel consciously connected to two worlds, our world and the dream world. So I was thinking about trying that as an exercise. I mean, it would have to be on the weekends, of course, but maybe before a writing session, I actually am a person who wakes up from napping feeling very refreshed. And Zivia recommends that you might pose a question like before you take a nap. She also suggests that you pose a question before you go about doing like an errand or something. And so then you come back, you wake up or you come back from your errand and then you more deeply explore that. So that's something that I really could see myself trying out and seeing if it benefits my process uh, and, and help me be a little bit more directive, you know, than just going through the motions, which is so easily to it's easy for me, I should say, to fall into with my writing, you know, like I sit down and then I just start and it takes me a while to get into. So that's what I'm going to try. That's what I'll commit to trying one of these weekends soon, or, or maybe just now. Maybe I'll grab a quick power nap. <laughs> Let's take a nap before yeah. the next segment. Exactly. I'm going to contemplate that. Um, we'll catch you on the other side. Grant and I are going to catch a couple Z's. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so pleased to have Zivia Gover on the show today. She is the founder of Dreaming on the Page Classes and Workshops, the author of several books, including The Mindful Way to a Good Night's Sleep. She teaches programs internationally, domestically, and online. And she is a certified dream work professional, which is super interesting. I'm excited to talk to you about this, Zivia. Uh, you have an MFA from Columbia University in creative nonfiction and also, you write and dream in Western Massachusetts. I love that. But the new book that we're talking about, which it wasn't in your bio for some reason, is Dreaming on the Page. So we're going to get into that as well. Welcome. Oh, I'm very pleased to be here with both of you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And Dreaming on the Page is about many things, but I want to point readers or listeners and readers uh, to the subtitle, which is Tap into Your Midnight Mind to Supercharge Your Writing. So I want to ask you about the midnight mind, which is a term that Grant and I both love. How do you work with writers to harness the power of their dreams and their unconscious or subconscious in ways that are generative? Yeah, absolutely. The, the midnight mind is basically our brain on different um, neurochemicals at night when we're sleeping and dreaming than during the day. So the way we tap into that, the way we use that and take advantage of it, and I can also talk if you're interested a little bit about what the difference is, what happens when we shift into the dreaming mind. Yeah, please do. So the dreaming mind, uh, what I call the dreaming mind is when we're in REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep for the most part. 
uh, is where dreams take place, the narrative dreams that we're used to talking about and experiencing, vivid, narrative, full of metaphor and symbolism. That usually happens during REM. And during that phase of sleep, the parts of our brain that are highly activated are gifts to writers. Okay, so what's highly activated is the metaphor-making parts of our brain. What's highly activated are the random association parts of our brain. So we put together things we don't put together during the day. You know, we put together ideas, images, memories, associations, and also vivid imagery and highly active emotional states, which are great for great writing. And what's deactivated in that neurochemical stew that we get into when we're dreaming is the prefrontal cortex where our sensor lives. That's where the part of our brain that says, that's not a good idea, that's stupid, you're not good enough, all those things. And also taboos, places where we're not supposed to go with our thoughts based on our religious upbringing or our perception of ourself by day. So that's the midnight mind. And it's just such a great place for writers. Well, that's so interesting, Sivia. And, and I know, um, just to shift topics a little bit, um, I know so many writers struggle with the idea of whether it's worthwhile to write if their writing is just for them. And you, like I, you really encourage this idea that the value of writing for yourself uh, and that there is a value in writing, not necessarily for an audience. So I was wondering if you can talk about how and why that's beneficial. I'm so glad you brought that up. It's I just notice these days when I'm on social media and when I'm looking at what's offered for writers in the world, so much of it is about publishing your work, marketing your work, which is great. We need that. but. There's a whole nother dimension of writing and dreams affirm that we're all storytellers because we all dream whether we remember them or not. And the dreams come as stories. They are cinematic, they're narrative, right? They're poetic. So I want everyone to get in touch with their writer, with their creative self, with their storyteller. It's so human. It's so basic, whether you ever publish a word or not. And there are so many ways to make our writing public that's different from that kind of a stage. You know, just sharing around a writing circle is a beautiful way to make our writing more public, to publish in a smaller sense, or just to tell a friend a dream. Then you're being a storyteller right there. Um, so it's just part of who we are. It's in our soul to be storytellers. So I don't want it to be classified as only for some people. But I just want to say that well-known authors use the methods in my book too. So it's for everybody. If you're journal keeping, if you're just telling your stories out loud, or if you're publishing them and you're a best-selling New York Times author, as some of my readers and workshop participants are. I'm glad you said that, Sivia, because there's so many great exercises in the book, and we do have a couple of questions about that um, later on. But I, I did want to first ask you, because you mentioned social media and everything is so fast paced, you know, we're always working toward the next thing. It's it's second nature in a way, but it's also expected in this culture. And then the result of that, of course, is that people are really overwhelmed. And I am feeling overwhelmed myself. And I think there's been this 
thing going on since the pandemic. And my, my sense of it is it's like we slowed down, we were sort of more alone, a little bit more isolated. And then that got followed by this period of like vast acceleration for some of us. Uh, and so I'm just curious what kinds of stories you've heard from readers, you know, since this book has come out, you know, what has been your sense of the state of people's creativity right now, you know, especially given all these huge global changes we've experienced in the last couple of years? Yeah, well, people, including myself and the people in my workshops and um, classes, have shared with me that it's been a real adjustment. So we've, we went inside and then we came out and um, people are still using writing as a way to turn inward, which is really, really important, but they're being tempted so much to move outward more. So it's regaining our footing. It's regaining our balance as people who write, you know, people who look inside ourselves. So, yeah, we really do have to regain that footing. I agree. And I think re regaining our footing is one, one way to do that is to get in touch with our dreams, of course. And I think uh, one thing I love about your book is how it's full of a lot of writing prompts to stir creativity and get people writing and explicitly, you know, to connect them to their dreams and dreaming. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about your personal interest in dreams and, and what do you say to writers like me who often don't remember their dreams. Ah, I'm glad you asked about not remembering your dreams. I'm just going to dive in there because that's so important. You don't have to remember your dreams to tap into the midnight mind, to use dreaming on the page, to access the gifts of your dreams. So I just want to start there. There are many ways in, you know, a guided meditation can take you into that dreamy state. Um, writing first thing in the morning where you're in this liminal space between those shifting brain chemistries that we talked about earlier. And that's really almost the best time or right before bed. I tend to write poetry right before bed when I should be honoring all of my good sleep hygiene practices, but suddenly an idea comes to me and all of a sudden I'm writing poetry, you know, way past my bedtime because those liminal spaces are rich. So you don't need to remember dreams to get into that dream state. And also you can use other things as a what I call a waking dream, a dream when you're not asleep, such as pulling a few oracle cards or tarot cards and saying these three cards are my dream and just using any of the techniques that I offer um, using that or tapping into your subconscious by using that as your dream, as your prompt for your writing. Well, that's great, Sivia. And I want to go back to Grant's question just about how you got into dream work in general. Like, were you a writer who got into dream work or a dream worker who got into writing and, you know, kind of jumping off from there? Like, what's what's the best starting point? You know, where was your starting point for this work? So both dreams and writing came to me pretty early. I I always say my dreams got interested in me at a very young age. You know, I was having vivid dreams early. I remember talking about them when I was four or five years old. So I just loved them. And I also started writing as soon as I could put sentences together. You know, I, my earliest collection of poems is in a red loose leaf binder that says P-O-A-M-S on the cover because I couldn't spell then and I can't spell that now, but I was 10 years old. And then when I was 20 years old, I 
discovered this looking back on an old diary I wrote, and I put this in my book as well. I am a dreamer, a writer without words. I am a writer, a woman who wants to share her dreams. So I say all that to say it's always been intermingled for me. And in my book, I talk about stating the obvious, you know, about these connections. So when you say, where do other people find their way in? It's by just knowing that dreams and writing are connected inherently within us. And a lot of people who love to write intuitively know that, but they might not ever have articulated that for themselves, but they just intuitively know it. You know, they might um, write a dream and turn it into a poem. I mean, people do that all the time. You know, famous writers, some of my writing teachers, Lucille Clifton, has a whole series of poems, My Dream About. And it's just basically a dream with line breaks. Love that. I've got to go read that now. I love the description of a dream with line breaks. Um, it's irresistible. Uh, well, Sivi, you know, your, your book is really about harnessing, you know, these different ways of approaching writing to access these new dream perspectives and deeper levels of creativities and, and in some ways stepping away from the pressures the outside world puts on us to be generative and to be oriented towards success. But you also do tackle practical things like revision and publishing. So I was wondering if you could say, you know, why that outward orientedness felt important to include and how you think about this balance of inward and outward that probably most writers toggle between. I know I do, and sometimes too much to the latter. Yeah. So again, it's about balance, but absolutely. So the way that I see that, I think about um, as a dreamer, I always say we take our dreams off the pillow. If we just leave our dreams on the pillow, we're missing out on their full power meaning we take them into our day, we take what we learn from them, we take their creativity, we take their humor into the day with us. Um, and the same with um, my view of the writing process, we're manifesting something. And again, it doesn't have to be that we're revising it to publish it, but we're revising it to make that piece of writing, that story, that expression the most real, authentic, and true expression that it can be. So revision is a value whether or not you're going to publish. It's a way of bringing something to its final form, to its ultimate form, to its full potential. So I share that um, in the book. You know, I encourage people to think for themselves, does this piece of writing want to be more public? Does it want to be shared on my refrigerator in my kitchen for my the closest people, you know, only your closest people are going to be in your kitchen. Or is this something I want to send out on a postcard to five friends? Or is this something I want to read at an open mic? You know, what is the life of that expression? You know, what is the life of that poem or story? What's its destiny? I love that so much because you're really talking about being more intentional. And <laughs> I think sometimes so many people are like, I wrote something, so therefore it should be out in the world or public or part of my book. And, you know, clearly there's just more ways for the work to get out in the world. So thank you. And I also like to encourage people. So if you are a writer who's writing for publication, to use the dreamy skills for that too. We don't have to let the dreamy right part of our right side of our brain go. You know, when we get to those more left brain tasks like revision, we can still bring some of the dreamy glitter, you know, things like synchronicity and, um, 
you know, I always used to like, I always like to use colored pens and colored highlighters. I like to just bring some color and fun into some of the more workaday tasks too. Well, Sophia, our final question here um, is about writer's block. I mean, you tackle a lot in this book, and we really highly recommend it to any writer. Uh, and writer's block is just, it's a big one, you know, in the sense that it's like, it, it's something people talk about, it's something people experience. But tell us your theory on this and how you guide readers to different ways of thinking about framing writer's block. First of all, what I love about our dreams is even if you just remember a few dreams now and then, you never have to start with that blank page. You never have to be blocked because you can always, as we mentioned, use the dream as a basis for a story or a poem. Um, you know, just shift into third person, write your dream in third person, he, she, they, instead of I. And you might very well find the beginning of a story. Uh, especially nightmares are good for uh, coming up with stories just to ask Stephen King or um, Stephanie Meyer. They both use nightmares in their writing. But also, you know, like I said, you can just start writing a dream and you can get a prompt, an idea from that. So you don't have to have writer's block when you remember even a handful of dreams. But also part of the way I think about it is when we're blocked we're often just sort of afraid of exploring the neighborhoods of our mind. Um, maybe we're also feeling too much pressure um, to make it public, to make it perfect or publishable. So focusing on the process end of things that dreams are real helpful in doing, you know, dreamy mindset um, can take away that block. You know, if it's just like, I'm just scribbling on paper, I'm just making a creative mess here. Uh, it's a lot less likely that we're going to feel blocked. It's so great, Sophia. Thank you. Very permission giving. Uh, and listeners, go get Dreaming on the Page. It's a great book. We're so grateful to have you on the show. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I admire both of your work very much. So it's a privilege to be here. Thanks so much, Sylvia. Here's to creative messes and all the all the things they hold. I love it. Sweet dreams. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Today's book trend, we're talking about the rise of the music memoir grant. And I just thought this was a super interesting story that came out of The Guardian that is worth sharing with our listeners uh, who tune in to hear us talk about memoir so many weeks. And the article was written by Elton John's ghostwriter, Alexis Pedridis. Uh, and he was basically identifying this phenomenon of more and more music-related memoirs and autobiographies, not just from major music figures, but also from people in the industry, a whole slew of them, really. Yeah. What I liked about this article is that he goes he goes deep into who's writing these books, which is one aspect. Of, and it's everyone from household names like Keith Richards, Bruce Springsteen, Bono, Elton John, Patti Smith, Kim Gordon, too. You know, these insider music industry figures like Island Records founder Chris Blackwell. And if you want to go back and listen to some of the people we profiled, uh, we interviewed Danielle Smith, who's the author of Shine Bright, a very personal history of black women and pop. And she's local here to the Bay Area. And we, we both love that book. And so I'm not surprised to hear that 
with music memoir uh, is on the rise, given how much music is, you know, an integral force of our lives. It's, it's maybe the one thing we share with the most people. And basically, music uh, stars give us the soundtrack to our lives in many ways. And, you know, recently, I also read Liz Fair's memoir a while back because Liz did NaNoWriMo several times. And I found it so, so interesting to complement her music with the stories behind the music. And I've been thinking a lot about music and memoir recently as a result, and, and especially after Sinead O'Connor died, because, you know, there was this outpouring of grief that reacquainted me with her music that I'd experienced so long ago, but also because Sinead wrote this brilliant memoir and the popularity of memoir and autobiographies for famous people means that we can have a lot of insight into these people's lives. And, and Brooke, the article in The Guardian you know, it spoke to the public appetite for these kinds of books. So, so I'm curious if you could take that a little further and explain what he said and, and if you agree. Yeah, well, the author um, of that article posits that the success of these memoirs can be directly linked to the decline of the traditional music press. Hmm. So interesting. Uh, and he noted specifically the closure of Q magazine in 2020 as a kind of death nail. And, you know, we don't have nearly as many music magazines as we once did. That's just, I think, indicative of the entire industry. You know, the entire media landscape is changing. Things are closing down. And if those avid readers are looking to hear from people they loved, then, yeah, of course, like these books are going to have a built in audience. And I think that the readers are people exactly like us, Grant, you Mm -hmm. know, like people in their 40s, 50s and older who are going to pick up a book by someone who they love loved in earlier times of their lives, you know, maybe who accompanied them on some part of our journey. Uh, I did not read Sinead O'Connor's memoir until she passed away. And I'm just so glad it exists. And that's another thing, you know, it's like these can have these resurging interests, like Prince, in fact, wrote like 20 pages of his memoir uh, before he died. And then someone, of course, was able to ghost that and they published it posthumously. Uh, I read Brandy Carlyle's memoir over the summer. I love her, but I did not really love her memoir um, that much, except that she sings in the audiobook, And that is very awesome. Uh, but Grant, the entire thing inspired me to think more about who are some of my favorite music artists whose books I would read, like I would be first in line to buy these books. Uh, Tracy Chapman, there's a biography about her, but she hasn't written her own memoirs. Uh, And then Amy Mann, who, as it turns out, is a great artist. And I found an article that was written in 2021 that said she's working on a graphic memoir. So when that comes out, I'm getting it. (laughs) Grant, how about you? Like, who are your musical loves, you know, whose memoirs you would just like be craving to get your hands on well first if amy mann is listening which i'm hoping she is uh, we'd like to invite fight her on the show to talk <laughs> about uh, especially writing a graphic memoir so i'm a big amy mann and tracy chapman fan um when i think of memoirs uh, you know i think of uh, like i'm thinking of leonard cohen who was such a fantastic writer uh, and such a genuine writer that I, that I feel like I, I read a memoir by him just through his writing, but I don't think he wrote a memoir that I know about. Um, I'd, I'd love to read Tom Waits's memoir. Um, I know Deborah Harry wrote a memoir and I'd, I'd love to read, read hers just to relive that era in music. Cause as you mentioned, Brooke, you know, 
if we grow up with a with a, a musician, you know, we, their life story appeals to us, and just so we can relive those days. And then, you know, I've read Patti Smith's memoirs, uh, which are just an absolute treat because she's such a great writer herself. And I was thinking about this when when we were talking about non rock stars writing memoirs, industry insiders. And I have a friend, John Strom, who was in the Blake Babies, and later he was in the Lemonheads, and and then through a bunch of other jobs, he, he recently became president of Rounder Records. And he writes these great miniature essays about his his whole rock and roll history on Facebook. And I've, I've told him he should collect them into a book because they're so compelling. So this conversation drives home for me why music memoir is so popular. You know, we, we love the artists and it's, it's true that the more time goes on, the more curious we might be. And those are artists we used to love and haven't heard from in a long time. And anytime we lose uh, uh, an artist like like uh, Sinead O'Connor, the world erupts, and, and we get to be reacquainted with their music. So, you know, I thought about this following Tina Turner's death. You know, I was hearing her everywhere I went. So that's also one powerful reason to write your own memoir, whether you're famous or not. You know, to leave your music behind. So we hope you'll join us next week as we continue this ongoing conversation of writing the song of your story. Thanks for listening, everybody. 